Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, welcome everybody, and here we go with another recording of GodPod. And um, today we have uh, the three usual suspects, myself, uh, Graham Tomlin, we have uh, Jane Williams with us. We do. And we have Michael Lloyd. Hi. And uh, Jane is in Cardiff, and Michael is in Oxford, and I'm in Twickenham in London. And uh, But we also have a guest today, and we're really delighted to have um, uh, a good friend with us, someone who um, we've wanted to get on GodPod for quite some time, but um, uh, that's... Uh, Lockdown in some ways has enabled us to do it because you can actually access people who are, you know, who um, live a little bit uh, away from where we do. So um, it's great to have um, Professor John Swinton with us. John, lovely to see you. Oh, it's lovely to be with you. It's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I say see you because we can actually see you on Zoom. Um, uh, but most people listening, well, most people hearing this will be hearing you. You can't actually see you, but good to hear you as well as see you. But um, if you don't know John, John is the Professor of Divinity and Religious Studies at the School of Divinity, History and Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. So, um, uh, wonderful place, Aberdeen. I remember going there some while ago and visiting you and many of your colleagues. You enjoy living there, John? I do. Well, I don't have any choice, but uh, thankfully I do. Uh, I've lived here forever. I mean, I've lived here for uh, it's more since 1972, so I, I must like it in some ways. It's a great city, nice place, nice people, nice schools. I can't complain. Yeah. And a very fine divinity faculty, I must say, as well. Oh, yes, yes, that, that too. That too, <laughs> of which you are part. <laughs> but, um, so, John, it's, it's uh, it'd be great to spend um, half an hour or so chewing over some of the issues of the day and particularly related to some of the uh, the books that you've worked on in recent times. And uh, I guess to, to, to launch into it, I mean, one of the, your, your books, one that I've particularly enjoyed in recent years is... Um, is your book Raging with Compassion, um, which is a book on the problem of suffering and evil. And as Godpod listeners will know from many previous episodes, we'd uh, come back to this issue again and again. And um, uh, John, I suppose particularly at the moment, I guess there are a lot of people out there, Christians and others, um, asking the question, uh, that, that particular question about evil and suffering, which in some ways is a, is a pervasive, all and it's, it's, it's always there in the background, but particularly it's been brought into sharp focus by the pandemic we're going through at the moment. And, and um, that question of, um, of uh, why God might have allowed this to take place, um, what is happening, how do we understand kind of divine providence in the light of covid uh, I don't know whether you've had any particular reflections on that in the light of the um, the pandemic as you've reflected on it over the um, past few months. And particularly, you know, thinking about the themes that you brought out in that book, uh, viewing them through the lens of the pandemic. I don't know what your kind of observations and thoughts and reflections are, uh, have been over these past few months. Well, it's been actually really interesting. I mean, the, the kind of central thesis for Raging of Compassion is that 
theodicy can be unhelpful because if you encounter an evil or a grief or something that devastating that happens to your life and somebody comes along and gives you an explanation for it, for example, it's all in the God's will and ultimately it'll work out for good, then that doesn't really help you. And sometimes it can make it worse if you particularly associate your situation with personal sin, et cetera, et cetera. So what I kind of thought about there was maybe the Gospels gives us a way to frame understanding and practice resistance to evil so that's kind of what it is and i, I do think it, it, it relates to the virus in a number of ways um to begin with working out what evil is is very interesting and very it's much more tricky than we think it is you know paul in, in the beginning of romans talks about evil and talks about sin uh, as a kind of a situation where you uh, begin to mistake that which is good and godly for that which is human. So there is a sense in which it's quite difficult to see sin because it's it's almost invisible to your worldview because you're looking in a different direction and looking in a different way. I think something like the pandemic opens up space for uh, looking more clearly at what sin might be and how it might actually be embedded within a society. So, for example... If you take the, the simple example of the uh, run on toilet rolls at the beginning of the pandemic, oh. where for whatever reason, uh, everybody wanted to have lots of toilet rolls because it was a pandemic and you need toilet rolls. Why you need toilet rolls for an airborne uh, virus <laughs> is less than clear, but it was, it was clearly important. Uh, but then it moved on to a run on food and so on and so forth. And what you really begin to see is that when things are normal and when we have plenty then we're quite happy to be generous but when things go wrong as a, as a, as a society our generosity begins to be frayed and ultimately begins to disappear as it becomes every person for for themselves so I think that you know that spirit of generosity is something that's central to the gospel and something that is uh, uh, central to a good uh, and healthy society, but it's something that has been unearthed by the virus that actually underneath where we're not particularly uh, uh, generous. In fact, we have maybe what Walter Brueggemann talks about is a scarcity mentality, that we're always afraid of losing the things that we have. And even when we have a lot of things, because I mean, there's, there's enough food in the country to feed us all three, four times over. But when we begin to think that there's not, that scarcity mentality comes up, uh, comes to the fore. So we have this strange tension between worshipping a God who is generous, and you know, the whole, the, the, whole of the, the book of Genesis talks about that generosity and the giving of God and the scarcity mentality that many of us have. Brueggemann points to the way that uh, Pharaoh has it, but then the virus pandemic seems to draw the same thing, same, same kind of thing out there that we forget about people because we, we want to look after ourselves. So I think if we, rather than trying to answer the question of why God has allowed the pandemic to, to, to happen, because I don't really think it's, it's, it's a, there's a, a good solid answer to that. Allow the situation that we're in to throw up things like a lack of generosity, things like the structure of society and the hidden sins within uh, the way in which we assume life to be as normal. So I, I wouldn't say I saw it as an opportunity, but I think there are particular ways that we could look at it that are, are helpful. Yeah, it's struck me that the um, people have talked about whether the, the pandemic is a, is a judgment. Uh, 
um, of God. And um, I mean, in one sense, clearly, no, it's not something that you know God has sent upon us because we have particularly been more sinful than any other culture. But but judgment in the sense of crisis, crisis, in the sense that judgment reveals things. I guess that's a little bit what you're talking about, that, that, that moments of judgment reveal things that we haven't always seen before. And maybe this pandemic is revealing aspects of our society, our behavior, our inequalities, and the way in which the pandemic has hit people in so many different ways, uh, where you know, the poor living in crowded housing find it much, much harder right. than those who live in, in, in big houses, for example. It's shone a spotlight on so many things. It's revealed things to us that we wouldn't otherwise have seen. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice way of putting it. And because I think if you think of judgment in, a, in its negative sense, in that sense that somehow God sends this uh, to punish us, it would be unusual in the light of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for God to send something that is particularly picks in vulnerable people and poor people mm-hmm. and people who really are having a difficult enough time in life without something else coming onto it. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, leaving a good younger people, more wealthy people in reasonable health, at least in principle. So I think that idea of judgment, the way you framed it, is probably makes a lot of sense because the, the point of judgment really is to help us to see God more clearly and come to love God more fully. And so if we think about it in that way, then it's, it's, it's a kind of opportunity. But I'm not so we're all trying to talk then. This is so interesting. I mean, one of the questions, again, that I keep being asked in this context is, what what is the point of Christians going on talking about the love of God under these kind of circumstances? And I suppose, John, part of what you're saying is, what's the point of us talking about love at all unless we're prepared to begin to try to exercise it? Why should we want God to be loving if we if we don't want to be loving? Is that is that a, a good approach or an unhelpful approach? Well, I mean, I, I think love is always a practice. It's not a concept or an idea. It's something that we do and something that God does. So it's not something we sit back and reflect. Isn't it nice to be loved by God? Because as, as soon as we begin to recognize that and we if we're going to really claim to be loving people, then it's an outward movement. We have to act. We have to engage with the world in particular ways. And I think at this time when people are anxious and afraid, the way in which Christians engage with the world is profoundly important because it may well be that people can't uh, um, uh, come to terms with the idea that God loves them and this still happens. Uh, uh, But if through that, those who claim to be uh, the physical manifestation of God's love uh, are acting in a loving way, at least there's a counter narrative in there that offers people the possibility of feeling and experiencing something, even if intellectually it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Mm. I was thinking of uh, Camus' novel, The Plague, uh, and how the priest in that is a good-hearted person, wants to help his parishioners, but feels he shouldn't because uh, it's obviously the judgment of God and he'd be fighting against God, whereas the atheist doctor just gets on with the job of, of helping them. And I think I, I found really helpful what you said about uh, that the Odyssey is about practising resistance to evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think also I, I would want to add that it, having a way of thinking about God and evil that leads to practising resistance to evil, i.e. seeing God as being against it, 
when you when you look at the person of, of God incarnate, what he's doing is always attacking suffering, attacking death, un, undoing it. Um, and therefore that we need a way of thinking about this that in which God is utterly opposed to the pain of his of his world. I think that's right. And I mean I think some of us are a little bit nervous sometimes of using the, the, the language of spiritual warfare, but I think it actually captures something really important that we are engaged in a battle against forces that don't simply manifest themselves in supernatural ways, but actually manifest themselves in concrete socioeconomic ways. Uh, and that as Christians, we are called to uh, be able to discern the times, as Jesus puts it, a part of which has to do with knowing what evil looks like. And also understanding the, the, the banality of evil and the way in which even Christians can easily, very easily get caught up in the evil uh, without even noticing it. You know, uh, that, so if you take something like um, the kind of clothes that you buy, so you or I might buy a nice pair of trainers or might, might buy a, a, a nice T-shirt. But if we trace, and it might be quite cheap, and if we trace, but if we trace that back to who made it, who was paid for it or who not paid for it, who profits from it, and wh whether or not this particular way of manufacturing your shoes or your, your shirt, whatever it is, actually um, encourages, for example, child labor, then you engage with the powers in that sense, you engage with evil simply by using your credit card. So Hannah Arndt talks about the idea of the banality of evil, that you know, it just happens in the everydayness of life and you don't really notice it. The, the, the simple swipe of your credit card can very easily get you drawn into some of the most radical evil that goes on in the world. So that process of discernment, I think, is really, really important that we are, are as part of your res our resistance to evil is to see it and part of our ability to see it means that we have to be able to engage with our spiritual practices in a way that transforms our mind so that we can we actually see that even these little things we do in life can actually be forms of evil and participation in evil and, and it also suggests that our response our resistance to evil has to be corporate doesn't it it can't be just individual because i i can't do all that research to find out where my trainers are made and who benefits and who doesn't and who's exploited in the process i depend upon people writing doing that research writing reports publishing it i depend upon the investigative journalists and the publishers and everything else uh, before i can actually make an an uninvolved with evil decision it also strikes me how we're um it kind of leads you towards some of the logic of the doctrine of original sin the idea that sin is a kind of network of relationships and it's a kind of web in which we're caught it's not that we are sort of all autonomous individuals who choose to choose to sin or not to sin but actually we're caught in a kind of web that we can't quite escape from and you know i think your example of the trainers is is one but you know something like you know every time we we, you know, we, we buy a, something in a plastic bag or sort of plastic covering. We are somehow contributing towards the plastic that is clogging up our, our oceans and destroying our planet and so on. That in all these ways, we are kind of caught up in a, a kind of web of activity and of sinfulness that we, um, that we, we didn't create, but we can't quite escape at the same time. And, um, and so it just leads in that direction. I mean, I mean, one other question I wanted to ask you about John was that one of the things that, you, that struck me when I read your book about raising with compassion is your your um your insight that you know is, you said that not all suffering is evil um and there is there might be some suffering that is 
is okay in its, in its own right, but that's, that e suffering becomes evil when it deprives us of hope. I think that was the point you were, you were making. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? And I suppose, you know, viewing the COVID and the suffering that COVID has brought through that lens of that distinction, um, what that means as we understand what's going on at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the, the point I was, I was making earlier really was that say you have toothache and you do suffer with toothache, but it's not an existential crisis. And well, it can be if, if it's one of your molars. I, I had that years ago. It feels like an existential crisis. But it's not really. <laughs> uh, so it's a form of suffering that is part of the way that creation is and part of the way that God's made us. But it didn't necessarily prevent us from engaging with and recognizing the love of, of God. Whereas uh, suffering which uh, prevents us from exploring, uh, experiencing rather, that loving presence of God uh, can become evil if it functions in that in that way. But it does. But all suffering doesn't have to be uh, framed as at least directly as evil, and that has implications in a, a number of different ways. But if you think about it in relation to um, something like um, pain control. So if you think about end-of-life care, maybe in, in palliative care or cancer care or something like that, where you experience deep, deep uh, pain. Uh, and it's that kind of pain that actually blocks the, your possibility of having a relationship with yourself, with other people, or with God. Because when you have that kind of pain, like, like most pains and sometimes but more intensely, all you can think about is the pain. So that sense, pain is, is, becomes the enemy of community and the enemy of faith in that sense, because it just destroys everything. It holds you back and it, it ties you into a space that you, you can't escape from. Um, now, in that context, if you think about it, then the giving of pain medication becomes a spiritual practice because it releases somebody to reconnect with themselves, with others and with God, and opens up a spiritual space that was completely occluded by the pain of that situation. So that's, that's the kind of thing. But what's interesting about that is also that the alleviation or the response or the resistance to suffering isn't necessarily something that is hyper-spiritual. It actually can be something that's pharmaceutical. Yeah. In other words, it's a grounded spirituality of, of suffering in that sense that opens up that space for uh, reconnection. And it likewise, within the area of mental health, when you think about um, the kind of depths of uh, darkness that someone with depression goes through, it's that same thing, you have that same sense of separation. And in that context, medication, for example, can have a spiritual function to bring people to a level where they can begin to reconnect in that way. So when you, when you think about it in that way, that suffering is, 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 is uh, fairly, it's not clearly defined, but it gives you a way to think about it. But the response to suffering is opened up. So we begin to see the response to suffering is something that comes from uh, certainly within the body of Christ, but also out with the body of Christ as God, I suppose, through natural grace, if you like, begins to use other means to resist evil that we perhaps don't notice. In a, in a way, similar to um, the, the Old Testament story of <clears throat> David playing his heart for, for Saul, troubled uh, with an evil spirit and, and somehow something physical and cultural like 
yeah. music is able to impact in that in that kind of therapeutic way that you're talking about. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Yeah, and it yeah. it sort of sounds then, John, as though we're edging towards saying that resisting evil um, in 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 the variety of different ways is aimed at allowing people to be them to be real people. To be um, so, so when pain takes away your ability to to be anything other than full of pain, where illness of, of various kinds takes away your ability to to be um, anything other than the than the illness to, to to be yourself. But you've also written very movingly and powerfully about um, dementia, for example, uh, and and therefore the challenge to exploring what it is to be a person. Um, and, and how we do and don't recognize um, people. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm not quite sure what I'm actually asking here, but it seems to me that one of the things the pandemic has made clear is, um, is that it is a spiritual practice, a Christian discipline to, to try to notice the reality of where people are and what they're involved yeah. in. I think that's exactly right. And, and to, to not to allow the fear and anxiety of the pandemic to separate us from God. I think that's one of the primary tasks that we as a church have is to, to try to help people to not become broken by this, but to recognise that in the midst of that suffering, you, God still remains. And also not to allow the pandemic to um, reform us into people who lose sight of the nature of human beings but also the nature of community and so one of the things that I find really interesting is if you think about the issue around uh, social distancing so the way in which uh, uh, I've watched a quite an interesting shift in the Scottish government's language around social distancing so when the pandemic began uh, the people talked about social dis distancing uh, which meant you don't go near your friends, don't go near your, your family, et cetera, et cetera. But now people are tending to use the language of physical distancing. Um, and I suspect that physical distancing is, is, a, is a, a more um, uh, Christian approach than social distancing. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Social distancing, the danger with social distancing is that you get into the habit of avoiding your friends, your family, and your social network. And so you become, uh, you, you find yourself in a position where everybody becomes your enemy. And so at one level, Jesus said, love your enemies, but suddenly everybody at level of health becomes your enemies. And so you get a, a, kind of a mentality of distance. Now, I think it's, it's obviously from a public health perspective, distance is very, very important. And physical distancing is very, very important. And so I, I, I have no concerns about that. We need to do that. It's to do with protecting our brothers and sisters and not killing your neighbor. So I, I'm quite happy with that. But the language of social distancing, if that becomes embedded in the way that we think about one another, could cause and will cause, I suspect, real problems later on, because we'd be in the habit of not socially engaging with people rather than simply keeping a physical distance. And there's a difference, but sometimes the language that you use to describe things you know, ends up being the way that you think the world is. So I think there's something, another dimension of the pandemic uh, we have to be careful of is the way it's shaping and forming our, our language, the way we talk about our relationships and we talk about one another. 
It's because social distancing is actually a contradiction in terms, isn't it? <coughs> the whole point about society is that it's about connection uh, and, and closeness rather than uh, distance. But so I think I agree with you. I think physical distancing is a, is a better. But it has. Um, but one of the things the pandemic pandemic has um, really highlighted is that we. Um, our society, uh, uh, what we think of as our social connections are entirely self-serving, generally speaking. So we can inhabit the same physical space as people whom we never connect with socially. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, and as Christians, I think that, again, what if we're if we if this give, is giving us a chance to rethink connection, social, physical connection. Um, a lot of our our students who um, are based in churches as they train um, say they've never noticed so many things they've never noticed about the area they actually live in because they haven't had to look at it. Yeah. Um, if if we were building, um, if we wanted to learn the lessons of this to build for the future, that might be one of them. How do we attend to the other people who actually inhabit our space so we mostly ignore yeah. them? One of the things that I just wanted to explore a bit more, John, was you're talking about um, you know, suffering becomes evil when it takes away our capacity to to love, to love one another, to love God. Um, and I suppose hidden within that is is that the very often within the experience of suffering, one also this just can happen to the to the most sort of mature and wise Christians, one experiences the absence of God sometimes in, in the, that experience of, uh, of suffering. And then I've spoken to a number of people over the past few weeks and months, you know, who are you know, deeply Christian in, in their life. They've had a Christian faith for many, many years, but have gone through a period of feeling the distance of God during during this time. And God isn't particularly close, whether that's through depression or through mental health issues, or just simply the, the, the feeling of kind of the kind of boredom of each day being the same or whatever it might might be. And I guess what what, what do you think um, Christian faith has to speak into that experience of the the absence of God, and how do we interpret that uh, when we go through that? Because I think I suspect that is probably quite common for a lot of people going through that kind of um, sort of spiritual um, sort of anguish as well, as well as well just the sort of physical ones that uh, COVID brings along. I think there's, there's a couple of things I would say on that, uh, and around. Um, lamentation and, and the silence of God. So the um, one of the interesting things that, that I, 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 I discovered in my, my last project, which was looking at the lived experience of people living with severe mental health challenges, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression. Um, and what I did in that book was spent two years speaking to people. So trying to get the experience as it's lived rather than experienced as it's theorized by any of us in that, in that sense. And it's really, really interesting. And that experience of, of the absence of God is, is very common, obviously, in, in, in depression and it's common in other places. But it's also quite common in scripture. You know, the, there are various places where God seems simply not to be there. Um, and, you know, Isaiah talks about God as the God who hides. And, and mm. there are points and periods where God seems to be completely absent from the, his people. Uh, whether that's willful absence or perceptual absence, nobody really knows. Like, 
Uh, and then obviously the ultimate absence seems to be Jesus on the cross when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And no answer comes back. So in other words, there is an aspect of our spiritual tradition which recognises that at certain points, and for reasons that are not obvious, always obvious, God is absent. But we don't really seem to, it seems to me, incorporate that into our liturgical or spiritual lives. The idea that uh, absence is actually part of our tradition and we should be thinking about that and reflecting on that and, and meditating on what that means. And so when people actually encounter that sense of absence of God, and all of us do in, in different ways, it feels alien. It feels as if we've done something wrong or it feels like it's, it's not part of our tradition. Whereas I think that if we kind of taught people how to understand or it's even raised the issue in a kind of spiritual context, that this was a part of our spirituality rather than something that's an aberration of our spirituality, it would be much easier for people when it comes to uh, difficult times to be able to have the spiritual resources to, to draw upon. Mm -hmm. uh, and one way in, in which obviously that works itself out is within the the Psalms of Lamentation. So Psalms of Lamentation provide a, a language, a way of talking about uh, frustration with God or anger with God or the absence of God, but always within the context of, of worship. And if you take something like Psalm 88, which ends, darkness is my only companion, that's a prayer. That's something that's part of our, our spiritual tradition. I mean, there's more lament psalms than any other kind of psalms in, in the, the book of psalms. Um, but we tend to move that back, that away from that or think that that's something, there's something wrong with the psalmist at that point. But perhaps the psalmist is simply articulating something that's really a, a common human experience that we'll, we need to be able to articulate. And if we articulate it, then it becomes less threatening. And if it's less threatening, then it, it makes us easier to, to walk through these more difficult times. Yeah, it seems that if, if it's true that at the heart of our faith, we have that remarkable cry of dereliction when Jesus prays that he addresses that to God my God my, why have you forsaken me and again it's a prayer isn't it it's not yeah. a kind of cry out into the into the to the to the nothingness it's a, it's addressed to God and, and yeah. addressing God's absence to God to God's self as it were and um that redefines the experience of the absence of God actually as a kind of spiritual moment spiritual experience yeah. because I guess and I often think it's maybe Christians who most feel the absence of God, because when you feel the absence, be like you know somebody, like someone who's been bereaved, you know, you feel the absence of the person who you've known so closely for so long, um, and so absence feels like a, a thing. It feels like a sort of, um, although it's not a thing, it's a kind of the lack of something, but it, it feels so much more powerful than than if you'd never known that person. And so it, it redefines absence, and it means that when Christians go through that time, it. It's, and I was reflecting on a conversation I had with Catherine Sonderegger a little while ago about this idea of um, the, the American theologian about, about hiddenness, that you know, God's presence is often not necessarily, sometimes it's manifest, sometimes we feel it, sometimes it's very aware. It's, it, we, we don't always have God's manifest presence. We don't actually have God's absence, but we do have God's hidden presence. And very often that presence is in a hidden form. Even in, even in Christ, you could meet Christ face to face and completely miss the fact that you were in the presence of God. That's right. And um, so hiddenness is becoming a quite important part of that, that experience. And of course, part of that, um, which is not in any sense to 
um, turn suffering and and the 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 dark experience of the absence of God, not to turn it into a positive thing, because that's much too simplistic. Um, but uh, part of what sometimes goes on in these dark times is you, you say, I thought I knew God really well. And you realise that the God you knew uh, and the knowing of God was dependent on being quite comfortable, okay. um, was dependent on, on actually, you know, God fits in quite nicely with my life as it actually is. And And when you hit those kind of, blank walls and there and that sense of so where is god then that it can be a really um devastating um crushing of 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 what could have been a a a picture of god which was in various ways superficial and that's part of what comes out of the desert tradition within christianity isn't it you actually lay down the, the the sort of things that 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 make life function pretty well without god um and uh, even though you keep talking about god nonetheless god is not you're not actually completely dependent upon god and the desert tradition takes you out to confront that in various ways um and so i say i don't want to turn that experience into in itself a positive thing um but people like john of the cross and others talk about sometimes the necessity of entering into that dark night, if that's what is inevitable. Um. I think that's a really good point. And I think that, you know, I'm always quite drawn to the the contemplative tradition, or at least the essence of the contemplative tradition, where you try to put to one side the things that normally you consider to be important, including the things of the intellect, um, in order that you can learn to love God simply for God's sake, because God loves you simply for your sake. And when you, you know, when you, I, I, I say I'm drawn to it, I don't say, I, I can't necessarily get to that space because I tend to want things for my sake. But when you think about what it might be to love God simply for, for God's sake, it's a real challenge spiritually because you, you, normally we, we, we love God because we're going to live forever or love God because he, he, he does this or that. The next thing, or he or she does this or that, the next thing. To learn how to love God for simply for who God is, is a profoundly important discipline because we need to learn how to love one another simply for, you know, who we are rather than for what you'll get from somebody or what they've done or where they are in the hierarchy of life. And so yeah, I think you're right, the spiritual fathers open up that space and these, these kinds of spaces in really interesting and important ways. And you have a, a wonderful chapter at the end of your the book on, um, on suffering, on friendship. And um, and how important friendship is in the context of, of suffering when you're going through that as well. And, I, and so something I've been thinking about a little bit recently, obviously, with you know, our inability to see our friends right now, um, maybe we're kind of more aware of the kind of value of that. But um, I just wanted if you could say, say a little bit about that and the significance of, of friendship. And that was a theme within the Desert Fathers and Mothers themselves in that kind of close relationship that was bound up with people who are living in the same community and so on. But what can friendship bring to the experience of struggle and suffering and mental health issues and so on? Well, many years ago, I, I did my PhD on uh, schizophrenia and Christian friendship. Mm. Uh, and what I discovered then, I was working as a hospital chaplain then, actually. So it's quite good to be working with people who were moving from um, long-term psychiatric care into the community 
uh, and to be thinking about the role of spiritual communities. So my job was to do that. And my, my thesis was doing something similar. And the first thing you notice is that when we talk about something like community care, there's a major problem because it's not really a community in the sense of an, an ethically joined together, loving, caring place that, that can take people as they are, uh, even in the, all the, the quirkiness. And so that gave me some really useful insights into to the nature of friendship in relation to marginalized people. Uh, and so I, I was drawn to the way in which friendship works itself out in the life of, of Jesus. And so culturally, we tend to think about friendship in kind of Aristotelian terms of like attracts like. That, you know, if you look at our, our circle of friends, for many of us, they look very similar to ourselves. So they have the same interests, same, uh, uh, go to the same places, share the same beliefs and so on and so forth. But if you look at the friendships of Jesus, you see something really, really different. So the principle of the incarnation is that God, who is radically unlike human beings, comes into the world and offers human beings friendship. As you know, in, in, the, in John's gospel, the disciples are, are shifted from, from servants to friends. And so friendship becomes the essence of what discipleship is. And then if you look at, if you look at um, the friendships that Jesus engaged in, it's quite startling, really, because he he becomes friends with people who are, in some senses, very different from who, who he'd be expected to hang around with. So tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, and not reformed tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes, people who are living in ways that religious people of the day thought was awful. And he, he sits with these people. And interestingly, uh, by offering friendship to this group of marginalized people, he shifts the boundaries, shifts the margins of God's presence. And so you still have people who are in established religion doing all the things that they can do to get closer to God. Whereas in fact, over here, uh, through G the friendships of Jesus, God is doing something quite, quite different. Um, it looks weird and it looks like it's on the margins, but actually the margins become the center. And so uh, in relation to uh, mental health, uh, uh, I, or as an example, or dementia uh, as another example, I, I think what Christian friendship and Christ-like friendship does is it reframes the issue, gives you a different angle. So rather than thinking about, you know, how can we, how can we provide pastoral care for people with mental health challenges or people with dementia, that's very important, everybody needs that. But it might be the wrong question. But if we say, how can we enable people who are going through these experiences, who have uh, a vocation and who are disciples of Jesus, how can we enable them to fulfill that vocation, even in the midst of the storms of their, the, the difficulties? And to me, that's a much more interesting question, obviously, but it's a much more, it seems to be a more biblical question than just how can we care for people? Obviously, care is fundamental. But actually, to, to, to take that dimension of discipleship and vocation and apply that as, as, as a way, uh, uh, as a dynamic to, to the, in, uh, that helps you to engage with somebody in friendship to help them to fulfill the vocation seems to me yeah. a really exciting prospect. And I'm uh, preaching in our college here uh, on the John 4, the story of the woman at the well, <coughs> and uh, this is a situation where Jesus is, is exhausted, and yet 
he reaches out to uh, somebody very, very different from himself across a number of huge social and racial lines at the time. Um, presumably because that's what he always does. And he actually, he's become the sort of person who gets energy from that rather than loses yeah. energy in the pursuit of that. Um, and that expansion of one's and enrichment of one's experience by the reaching out to that which is different seems to me to be the counter to that boredom of which Graham was speaking. Uh, even in our situa current situation where people are weary, they are tired, they are exhausted, they are, in many cases, hugely overworked, um, actually not to retreat into the conventional and comfortable and the same seems to me to be part of the answer. Obviously, you know, the literally spending time with, with that which is familiar, our families and, and close friends, is important, but, but also to stretch a bit and to expand a bit and to explore a bit seems to me to be part of what the current situation requires of us. One of the things I love about that particular story about the woman in the well and indeed so many of these stories, Zacchaeus, um, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet, um, it is Jesus receiving from them. So he asks the woman for some water. It's that it uh, and again that 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 might be a, a one of those images of friendship, John, that, you, that you're talking about. Not just the thing, not just the thinking that I'm taking this poor person something they yeah. need, but that these that these people have something uh, that is a gift to That's us. Right. We are reaching near the end of our time, and um, John, we are hugely indebted to you. Thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Uh, lots to ponder and think about. Um, uh, I don't always get to the end of a God pod and think I want to listen to that one again, but I think I do with this one because um, there's been lots of um, lots of uh, really good insights and thoughts to um, to ponder more deeply. So, John, we're really grateful to you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And um, if you've uh, if you've um, uh, enjoyed listening to this God pod and you want to read a bit more of um, John's work. Um, the two books I guess we've mainly focused on today are um, uh, Raging with Compassion, which is the book on uh, evil and suffering, and a, and a more recent one called uh, Finding Jesus in the Storm, uh, which is about, um, particularly around kind of issues of mental health and, um, uh, and finding Jesus in and, and a lot of conversations with people uh, who are in that situation and um, uh, Finding Jesus in the Storm, great title. So John, thank you so much. It's been great to have you with us today. Thanks again to Jane and to Michael. Pleasure. And uh, no doubt, all you GodPod listeners out there will be back again before too long. Well, goodbye. Until then, have a good week, month, whenever it is, until we meet again. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.